You tuned in to Relationship Factor, where we talk about all things relationships for millennials, moving you from a problem to solution, from functional to exceptional relationships. I'm your host, Kingsley Moyo. Hey, thanks again for downloading another episode of Relationship Factor. If we are not already connected, I hang out a lot on Instagram. Find me. Uh, the handle is Relationship Factor. Occasionally, they are dropping some relationship nuggets that will pick you up and carry you throughout the week and some helpful tips on how to build healthy relationships. And today, my guest is Molly and Trisha. Molly and Trisha are no strangers to Relationship Factor. It's good to have them back again. Molly and Trisha are communication experts. They are speech language pathologists by profession, and they host a podcast. And for our conversation today, we we decided to talk about millennial habits, toxic, four toxic female millennial habits that happen out there. You may be doing them or you may not be doing them. they're not even limited to females. But anyway, let's find out. Join me for this conversation. All right. So ladies, today we're talking about toxic millennial female habits. And we're going to be talking about four of these toxic female millennial habits. I mean, I, I must confess, I, I am not a female last time I checked. Mm-hmm. So I, I would not know. I am a millennial, though. So I figured, you know what? Let's get uh, two millennial ladies to come and talk about it and just, just get a perspective of what uh, toxic millennial female habits. Molly, take me there. Where do we begin? What's number one? So Trisha and I were thinking about different you know, female millennial habits that we wanted to chat about. And one of the first ones that came to our mind, we actually have a whole episode on this because we're so passionate about it, but it's about over-apologizing and just saying sorry excessively. Well. (laughs) And to be honest, Trisha and I have been in that situation where we have been over-apologizing and we have been saying sorry too much. So we want to talk about that because it's something we hear all the time and we want to help people. And I don't think this applies exclusively to women, but women tend to do it more often or when we do it, it almost has more negative repercussions, I feel. And so one thing that I have found to be tremendously helpful to avoid apologizing unnecessarily, which All of this is to say, when you do something wrong, of course, apologize that (laughs) itself to be able to have that humility to apologize when we've made a mistake. But what we're talking about is when you have this sort of sorry for living attitude, like, oh, sorry, I didn't know about that. Or sorry for this. Or I'm so sorry. And it's like, sorry to bother you. Yeah. Sorry (laughs) to bother you to take up your time, even though you called me or Things like that, where we do that out of habit. I remember when I used to live in New York City, I would get on the subway and just instantly be like, oh, sorry for just being in someone's way, even though I wasn't in anyone's way. I have every right to be on the subway. And so just gaining our awareness to times that we apologize unnecessarily can be very helpful and insightful. Why is that, though? Why is that this over-apologizing? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can I get that? Like somebody standing on your way. Excuse me. Like, why do we, why, why do we, why do we over apologize? In my opinion, I think it's because we're trying to be polite and that's great in some situations. I think there's a lot of different ways to come off as polite and respectful. And the way that as humans, a lot of times females interpret that is we have to apologize because we don't want to be in someone's way. We don't want to be intrusive on someone's thoughts. So let's apologize so they know we respect them. But there's so many other ways to do that. And when you're apologizing starting off, in my opinion, it makes you just putting yourself on a lower pedestal. You're kind of putting yourself down automatically when you say that. And you're not being able to show your confidence and your worth. Uh. I don't to me feels like we do it to like molly said show respect for other people and we feel that in order to show respect for other people we disrespect ourselves 
But that's at least how it's been taken to this extreme where, yes, saying, excuse me, when you're in someone's way, that's polite. But then it's gotten to this extreme where we apologize for every little thing. And it's almost as if saying, we're not worthy of this, but you are. I'm bowing down to you. So let me just apologize and and let you, you know take up all the space and I don't even deserve to be here. So there's, there's, there's a a lot of connotations around the idea of, um, uh, of not of worthiness or feeling lower uh, or confidence. And these are just words that are, that I'm, that I'm hearing uh, coming out from, from this idea of over apologizing. And of course, I mean, there's, there's apologizing. Do you think men apologize the same way as well? Sometimes, and I'm saying that because I've worked with clients who do that, but I recognize that if someone is seeking out help with speech coaching, they probably know that there's a deficit there, that they have these tendencies. So in my clients, yes, I've worked on this with a lot of men. As far as the average Joe at a party, I'm just picturing like my male (laughs) friends. I don't know if they necessarily apologize quite as much. Or even emails from male colleagues, not as much. So would you say that uh, the apologists tend to be female to female more or male, female to male more? Like when the females, do they apologize to each other the same way? Or apology would be to somebody who is male? How does that work out? I think it can definitely still be female to female, for sure. Maybe more female to male. but. I do that with Molly all the time. <laughs> like, you know, I was thinking of one of my friends who the other day, she was just like, sorry, I bailed. Sorry, I did that. Sorry, I did that. And it's like, you didn't do anything wrong. Stop saying sorry. It was like her birthday. I was like, you, just, you don't have anything to apologize for. And so I definitely don't think that it is only around men that women do this. So there's no need to over apologize because sometimes it puts you by apologizing, it puts you in a position of having done something wrong. And sometimes you didn't do anything wrong because if you are now in a position of having done something wrong, it means that you need to be forgiven of something. So the the power dynamics as it were shift, you're now on the lower end and somebody is above you. And psychologically, I would assume that does something to you as well. It's tricky. And so what Trish and I um, have thought about a lot, and this is something I try and do, especially in my emails, because I have the time to sit and type it out. But I'll try and replace the word sorry with thank you. So instead of saying sorry for my delay, I'll say thank you for being patient. Or instead of saying sorry for being late to lunch, hey, thanks for waiting for me. I appreciate it. I was so looking forward to seeing you. And you change that perspective so you're not putting yourself lower. You're appreciating the person's willingness to do what they did. That has been such a powerful anecdote for me as well because it's no longer asking for forgiveness. It's acknowledging that this other person was impacted by your behavior. That's why you're saying thank you for waiting for this. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your understanding. But it's not belittling myself in the process. It's acknowledging I'm a human. I make mistakes. But if we say sorry for those little things where we haven't done anything wrong, then when we do actually need to apologize for something, it's not going to have as much weight. And so if we're used to hearing someone say sorry for every little thing, when they actually do something wrong, are they really sorry? So instead, what we can do is, like Molly said, try to reframe the narrative from I'm so sorry to thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's showing that, hey, I understand that I'm worthy as a person, so I'm allowed to make mistakes, and I appreciate your understanding of that, instead of, sorry, 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 I'm so wrong here. It's interesting you mentioned that um, uh, it becomes your sorry doesn't carry much weight because it happens in relationships. When somebody keeps on saying sorry and sorry over and over for the same thing, it's like, are you, are you, are you really are you really sorry? Because you heard that word sorry coming from that same mouth over and over and over and over. And sometimes, some of the times when it was coming out as a sorry, it didn't need to come out as a sorry. It loses its value and and meaning. I remember having a conversation with somebody and we're actually having a debate. Which one carries more weight, 
sorry or I apologize. What do you ladies think? Probably I apologize because it's not used as flippantly. I would also see it coming out as I'm doing this duty and I'm I'm apologizing. I apologize for doing that, but you're not really owning it. Like, I feel like sorry is a feeling and apologizing is an act. Like, not an act like you're putting on a show, but like an action versus like the feeling that you feel. So I think it definitely depends on the way that you're stating what that word is. If you say sorry or say I apologize, you got to have the meaning behind it in the tone of voice and the body language too. Sorry is a t- has feelings attached to it. Apologize is like what you would say in an office. I apologize for being late. Mm. I'm sorry for being late. Something you would say to your to your boyfriend or your wife or something like that type thing. All right, okay. So that's number one. Uh, what's the what's the second one? Take me to the next one. So the next millennial female habit that we've noticed is a fear to be feminine. Fear to be feminine. What is that? Yeah. So obviously the word feminine has a lot of connotations. And so we want to be sensitive to how we're phrasing that. But what I've noticed is that in today's day and age, women are, at least women our age, are trying to do it all and be everything. And sometimes when you allude to the concept of being feminine or being girly, there's a connotation of weakness. And it's this feeling of, I don't want to be that. I am going to be the breadwinner and the homemaker, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And more traditional, quote unquote, feminine roles are considered very negative. And it's this hustle mentality and this go, go, go and do, do, do. And the reason that I feel that's a problem for modern women is because we're it results often in burnout. And I've experienced this too in periods of my life where I was so focused on work and productivity and getting things done and neglecting my innate feminine needs, which everyone has both masculine and feminine energy. Masculine is more about the doing and feminine is more about being and creating. But when I neglected my feminine side, I was very unhappy and imbalanced and I was attracting men in my life that I didn't really enjoy and things like, and there's just a lot of things going on. And so while I of course see the value and respect feminism and what that platform is about and it's empowered women to do so many things, there shouldn't be a negative connotation to being feminine and being really, that's not lesser. And traditional feminism is trying to make women more like men. And with and I feel like if not taken carefully, you can start to neglect your natural feminine side. So we want to do an, an identity shift as opposed to recognizing that, hey, I'm a male. There's certain things that I do. There's certain things that I don't do. I'm a female. There's certain things that I do that I don't do. And we're not talking about disrespect or the 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 ideas of women are less men are more men and you know sometimes i hear the phrases married people most so they would say that uh men are the head and women are the neck and guess what makes the head turn i think that's off it, it, it we say it in a nice way but it makes women l- lower the men yeah it's it's not so i i I'm interested in, in 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 exploring more on the idea of uh, it gives out the wrong energy and it attracts the wrong kind of people. I'm imagining. T- tell me more about that. I'm imagining that if you step out with a certain persona, um, Trisha is a go getter. Trisha is a boss lady. So there's a certain type of man that is attracted to that, and yet you're the boss lady. And then when you come behind closed doors around a dinner table or for a walk, Trisha shifts and she becomes this different kind of woman. Is that what you get in there, Trisha? Tell me more about that. Yeah. So we actually did an episode about this on our podcast as well. So for the full story, you can listen to that episode. But the basically what happened is there was a period of time in my life where I was just getting into speech coaching, living in New York City. And to be a speech coach, you have to be masculine dominant. You have to have the energy that owns the room. You have to speak with an assertiveness that is compelling for people. And so 
what I found was in that period of time that I was really working hard to hone that presence, which didn't come naturally to me. I'm naturally very much on the feminine end of the spectrum. Mm. So I found myself going on dates and just meeting men randomly that were very high in feminine energy. So again, every person, male or female, has both. And there are men that naturally have higher feminine energy and women that naturally have higher masculine energy. So it's important that we're in touch with ourselves. But I was exuding such a masculine presence that I was attracting these (laughs) men who were sitting there literally on our dates. They were just like, and I don't know how to solve my problem with my friends and like all this stuff that is fine. But what I need in a romantic partner (laughs) is someone who's going to lead. I need someone who's, I don't want to have to own the room in a romantic relationship. I can do that at work. Sure. But when I'm with my friends, when I'm with a romantic partner, especially, I want to be the person that follows. I don't want to be the person in charge. I want to be open to receiving. So masculine is about giving, feminine is about receiving. And so I just found myself repelling the sorts of men that I was actually attracted to because I was so in my masculine at that time. So you want to kick off the heels and just relax and be pampered. Molly, what do you what do you think, Molly? So it's interesting because Trisha is very in her feminine, especially now, like and I've always and I've always pictured Trisha as very feminine. I, on the other hand, I feel like I relate more to my masculine, but it is, I'm on this journey right now of figuring out like, is that, is that because that's truly what I identify with? Or is that because that's what society is telling me I should better identify with? So I always like kind of jumping into these conversations because I do want to work more on figuring out if I do relate to my feminine energies as well, because like Trisha was saying earlier, society is telling us you have to be very assertive. You have to be very dominant. Da 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 da. And I think that's naturally what I like to lean towards, but I also haven't tried to explore my feminine energy as much because it is seemingly not as powerful. Quote unquote. There are certain myths about manhood. Uh, the ideas of masculinity. If you're masculine, you should have muscles and strong guy. You should have this commanding voice when you speak and all these warped ideas. And I've never really thought of them from a female perspective, I guess, right? For this one, I'm not female, but now it's good. I'm having a, that conversation. So it's a journey. Um, you're saying, Molly, and if you don't have it figured it out, it's okay. You might be in a relationship and you're trying to figure it out. And maybe you might have that uh, that guy that has the firm, that that displays more of the feminine side. And by the way, some of these things are really affected by your family of origin, how you grew up uh, and your environment, social constructs and all that things. Uh, some people just had more si- uh, sister siblings. So some people had more brother siblings so they they had to show up like if i if i act weak my (laughs) this whole other tribe in my house is going to just dominate me so that happens too so you're saying molly sometimes people don't have it figured out so you might be a millennial which means you're in your 20s and your 30s you don't have it figured out so the first step is trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. and i think I hope this is just one of the many things I start to figure out as I grow older. You know, I hope I don't reach like 40 and I'm like, great, got it all figured out. I can be <laughs> done thinking now. <laughs> I hope that always I'm on this journey. And this is just one of the parts of the journey that I'm on is figuring this, you know, what I relate to most, this energy and what it means to be feminine, what it means to be masculine as a self-identified woman. But one thing I want to point out, just being Molly's friend for over 10 years now, is how much she already has grown in this. I remember when I used to make comments of about femininity, she'd make, have a, this really negative reaction, like, ew, like, gross, like, that's a weak. And, and like, <laughs> the word weak when I would say something just nonchalant, she's like, I'm not going to do that. Versus now, even though you're still exploring Molly, she taps a lot more into her creative side. Like Molly does all the art for our show. Molly is very good at decorating and things like that. And she's getting more into cooking and stuff like that. And just stuff that's more creative that before she's like, I'm not going to do that because 
that's not, you know, I, I need to do something productive or on my to-do list, which is very much the masculine, which is not a bad thing. Like, obviously, like I said, we need both and it's served Molly well in a lot of ways, but it's, it, it is apparent to me as her friend that her attitude around it has shifted a lot, which is what I think is the, the point of all this. It's not to say you have to be one way or the other, but it's to really check in with yourself and have an attitude that understands there's no right and wrong, but this is what works for me. And that can change from day to day, but you want to get in touch with what you naturally are, your natural essence, as opposed to what society is telling you to do, because that will ultimately lead to burnout. If you're trying to be in a different energy than what is naturally fit for you all the time, you're going to get burnt out because that's exhausting. And And one other thought on this is I want to make sure listeners aren't associating masculine with male and feminine with female. That's not what we're saying. I'm not saying I identify as a man. I'm saying I have these energies and we all have these energies in us, just to be very clear about that. Right, right, right. It's also uh, quite, uh, uh, quite clear that when we talk about feminine or masculinity, we're not talking about power or weakness. We're just talking about identity, mm-hmm. how you show up in life and what you are in touch with. And if you associate them with power and weakness, you'll always be fluctuating from back and forth. And in essence, that affects your identity. And if you lose your identity, you lose yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see burnout at work relationship burnout because one time you're trying to be this uh masculine side you're trying to be this feminine side and you don't really know as opposed to complementing each other in a relationship that way you can do much more and accomplish more yeah i love that you pointed out to the the relationship or the feeling that it's associated with strength and weakness because i feel like the overarching mentality is that masculinity is superior to femininity and it just brings to mind a story of we were when I was in New York we were I was with my colleagues and we were getting ready to move locations and there was a table to be set up and it was very heavy and it was just very difficult to set up and my coworker, who's a woman we were working on it together and I was like I, I'm gonna go ask so and so for help and she's like we are not asking for help it is international women's day we are gonna do this ourselves <laughs> which I respect where she was coming from. But for me, I was like, I have Girl, nothing. I can't do this. <laughs> I could, we did it. It was fine. But to me, it was like, I know that I can do this, but I have nothing to prove. Making this table is not going to make me more or less of a woman. And so it just, to me, it was like, you're that energy of like, I have to do this because I'm proving that I can, because I'm a woman. It's like, if you're in that space and think that you have to do something because being masculine is, better that's when you need to reevaluate because it's not better or worse Mm, so so as opposed to proving just being because we set out to prove people wrong to prove that i can do this to prove 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 and after you've proved it you're burnt out Mm -hmm. so it doesn't help you mentally uh, psychologically and it affects the way it really affects your identity in the long run and it's interesting because uh we're having these conversations about millennials and millennials have lived easily 25 plus years, which means a quarter century going all the way up to almost four decades. And we're talking about this idea of uh, the fear to be feminine, which means we've lived, you've, women have lived in these shoes for a long time, still haven't figured it out. So which means it says a lot about the society that we live in that the society we live in can push you in a direction and get you confused. And along the way, it will take advantage of you. Capitalist mentality and reality. Capitalist mentality is the one that sells all these ideas of masculinity, uh, femininity. And if you dress in a particular way, you present yourself in a way, wear a certain color and uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't know. What would I what what do I know? I'm a guy. I, I'm just I'm just learning. I'm observing things here. <laughs> yeah, but you know, because you're you're a guy and I'm sure it's we could get into toxic masculinity as well. But it's yep. yeah. a lot to talk about there. So everyone deals with it, not just women. 
what else? Where do we go from here? So we have over-apologizing excessively, just saying sorry all the time, even when you don't need to apologize. Second, the fear to be feminine. So number three, we thought of abandoning self-care and mislabeling self-love. So right now in the millennial generation, a big buzzword is self-care, self-love. And while Trish and I are obviously very, very for that, a lot of the ways that people are labeling what they're doing as self-love and self-care isn't really self-love and self-care. And Kingsley, you know this, you talk about this all the time, is knowing yourself and understanding yourself and loving yourself and putting a fizzy bath thing in a bathtub isn't the way to do it all the time. (laughs) Some of it, but going to that store and getting that isn't like, cool, checked. I love myself. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I took a bubble bath. (laughs) You you know, I laugh, but it's so true because that's what they sell us Mm -hmm. on social media. And that's what, TV sells us mm-hmm. um, self-care, going out for dinner, self-love, treating yourself. Okay, tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, so we were thinking abandoning self-care in the sense that it's easy to kind of going off what we were just talking about, but getting that go, go, go mentality that we forget to take time to carve out for ourselves And so I think the world started to recognize that. And so that's why there's this big push of like, take the bubble bath, eat the cupcake, treat yourself and all of that. But that is not actual self-care. I heard something recently that was talking about how true self-love takes discipline and you have to go out of your way to do something that's actually going to make you better. One thing that I have definitely fallen victim to over the years is I have a terrible sweet tooth. Just tremendous. I love sugar. I will eat seven cupcakes and feel fine. And I so, yes, that is very true. And so when I think, and this is actually something that I feel like women encourage one another to do in an effort to be supportive and loving, they'll say, eat the cupcake. You deserve it. Treat yourself. You've earned it. And so I'll be in this space of, oh gosh, I had a bad day. Therefore I'm going to eat this ice cream and it's fine. And thinking that that is self-care and self-love. And I'm labeling that as I'm doing this nice thing to me. Aren't I so great to myself because I'm letting myself have a cupcake and I'm not feeling guilty about it, which is great than not guilt. And we need that room for error and forgiveness when that happens. But if I'm going into it under the guise of this is me taking my care of taking care of myself by indulging in this thing that actually is not good for my body in the long run, I'm not saying never eat a cupcake again, but like taking a bubble bath, that's great. Do that. But you can't, you need to remember that true self-love is going to be difficult. Just like actual love, taking care of someone else can be difficult. There are times obviously that it feels good, but it's more, instead of to eating the cupcake, for example, if I exercised, that would be an act of self-love provided I was listening to my body and I was in a space that I was good timing for me to exercise and I'm not over exerting myself to a way that would be detrimental to my health. But if it's like, okay, I'm going to go take this walk in nature, that's self-loving because yes, it may have taken more effort, but afterwards I'm going to feel better. It has longer, long-term, better long-term effects for me and my body and my mental and physical health than just eating a cupcake, trying to suppress all of my emotions. So on that note, I would argue that for me, sometimes, for example, like Trisha said, exercise, it would be her form of self-care. I've been in the position where I will exercise and it's detrimental to my self-care and self-love because I'm in this mental state of push, 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 Molly, you need to like, you um, haven't worked out three times, like you haven't worked out enough this week, so you need to work out today. So I'm coming at it in a place of like, you need to do this and you're not good enough unless you do this. So make sure that like you are actually checking in with yourself to see what kind of self-love and self-care action items are actually helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Because for me, like Trisha was saying in the couple minutes ago, I'm a very to-do list type of person. And so for me, sometimes self-care is lying on my bed and watching an episode of Gossip Girl where other people (laughs) (laughs) it's hard work to do that because that's not my natural state so I'm saying Molly turn your brain off lie in bed for an hour 
give yourself this time. So it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I like the, the 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 fact that you're mentioning that we default to the easy stuff, uh, and then we tend to call that self care. And in reality, some of the easy stuff is actually toxic things. And I've never really thought of self love, self care as taking discipline. I've always thought of it as the easy way out because I'm burnt out and I'm struggling in something. You know what? I need to practice some self-love, some self-care, which means what? I just go sit and just do nothing. But in reality, sometimes doing nothing can be counterproductive to self-love because I might need to, I don't know, go see the doctor. And I'm saying self-love, I need to just sit at home and do something. And it's interesting, Molly, you say that self-love for you is sitting down and binge watching Gossip Girl, which is not natural for you, but it is self-love because at that time you're shutting down. So there is a context in how people do it. It's not necessarily always the easy way out. We tend to think of it. Yeah. And I think it, like Molly mentioned, it it depends where you're coming from with it. So sometimes, yes, self-love is relaxing and taking time for yourself. But a lot of what I think of the things that I've done that have that show that I truly care about myself are the hardest things like going to therapy is a major form of self-love. And that's when people think, no, I don't want to do that. I'm weak. And there are all the stigmas around going to therapy that we all know are (laughs) invalid, but those exist. But that is such a high form of self-love to really take the time that you need to process your emotions and to figure out your background and understand yourself. Reading books, self-improvement books, that's self-love listening to podcasts even and doing, but taking the action steps, engaging in a spiritual practice that might not be natural for you, but that's self love. And like all of these things obviously depends where you're coming from and where you're sitting at. But the things that are, that take the most effort in the beginning are the things that I found to be the most rewarding. I don't always feel great after I eat a cupcake. Sometimes I do, and that's fine. But when I feel great after I've made myself a really healthy, delicious meal, even though it took a lot longer, even though it was more expensive to buy the organic foods, I felt so much better after and I was doing myself long-term good. I feel good after journaling for an hour. I feel good after going to therapy. I feel good after reading these books. And so that's kind of how you know, is this actually an act of love for myself or am I using this to distract me from actually taking care of my emotional needs? So we tend to call self-love, self-care by things that are destructive without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And we want to run with those things because they, in the moment, they feel good. In the moment, I I, I, I was, I was, I wanted to jump in there. It was so good when you were mentioning that going to therapy is an act of self-love. Mm-hmm. Reading a book is an act of self-love. Listen to a podcast, listening to the loss out of communications, okay. <laughs> self, self-love, listening to relationship factor is self-love. In any relationship, couple dating or marriage, if the individuals are not practicing self-care or self-love, it is reflected in how they are relating to each other. I mean, how you date, how you take care of yourself. I mean, people are not attracted to anybody who doesn't take care of themselves. In fact, it's not attractive at all. It's like, you know what? You're toxic. I don't want to be with you. So if you want to be in a relationship and show up in healthy and meaningful ways, you need to practice good, healthy. So we shouldn't just call it self-care or self-love. We should call it healthy self-care or self-love. Mm-hmm. I like because that. The, That's a great way to say it. Because there's, there's, a, there's a toxic side of it and um, a dysfunctional side of it. So... How do I get to a point whereby I'm discovering that I am on the right path in healthy self-love and and in healthy self-care? I think it starts by checking in with yourself and figuring out what you need. And even checking in with yourself might be an act that is, you know, a little bit of a hurdle to get over at first. But thinking out loud, journaling doing a little meditation to see what is my body and my brain seeking right now and how can I help it? I think you could even evaluate, and there are plenty of little forms and things on 
online that you could access, but evaluate every area of your life, your friendships, your romantic relationships, your physical health, your mental health, your spiritual health, your environment, and just lots of different things and really see what's missing and where you feel good and feel like, okay, I feel great about my financial situation. I feel awful about the number of friends that I have, or I feel really fulfilled in my friendships, but I'm really not satisfied with my career. And taking a look at that whole pie and figuring out on a large scale on the macro where you are in your journey, but also on your day to day. So I think really evaluating the way that we're spending our time can be very insightful. If you notice that you're giving 90% of your week to work and 10% to everything else, like that's imbalanced. You're going to figure out there that something needs to shift. I think the way to know if you're on the right path is like Molly said, really check in with yourself and see how you're feeling. Cause if you start to achieve more of a balance, you're going to feel better in all of these areas of your life. If you're focusing on just one, some of the others may improve or may not. And so you have to really work synergistically with all of those aspects of your life. And I think it's pretty obvious. Once you start on that journey, you're like, wow, this feels better. It's so like good. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the person who hasn't gone to the gym in a month and then you go and you think, wow, that feels great. The key is to not let it be a once a month thing. And you try to figure out how you can establish that balance on a daily basis or a regular basis in smaller increments, because that's going to be more beneficial to work out 10 minutes a day, for example, than go once a month for three hours. And I think people get so stuck in that day-to-day self-care where then it can snowball into not thinking about your more big big picture high life situation. So I think, yes, thinking about your day-to-day, but also bigger picture. So, so Molly, you mentioned early on that, um, what are your needs? Because we tend to pay attention. This is what I want, but what do I need? And as you evaluate, as you're saying, Trisha, evaluating what you need, then you can get on that journey. Journaling is such a powerful thing and it can help you put your thoughts and organize them. Sometimes when your mind is racing, you you don't have a way of organizing your thoughts until you sometimes write it down. Some people can do it, but journaling kind of helps. I was just fascinated by the fact that uh, looking at your financial situation. Some people need to do a budget as a way of self-care. Yeah. <laughs> because of the stress that it causes in your overall arching day, right? Like if you sit down and do a budget, you're not going to be stressed as much later. <laughs> self-care, uh, doing a budget is self-care. I, I, I like that. I think that's interesting um, because if you have your finances off, you're in debt, you can't pay anything, you're you're not acting your wage as it were like you're making this money and you're spending this much. So, Hey, you need some self-care. Which Instagram would tell you, forget about the budget. Just purge. <laughs> and like, yeah, like, yeah. Okay. Occasionally, but not if it's going to cause you more distress in the long run. And that's really how, you know, I think it's like Molly said, if you have this underlying anxiety when you're going out to eat because you know, you can't afford it or it didn't fit your budget, reevaluate your budget, take the time to do that so that you can afford to splurge on those things. Interesting. Interesting. All right. That was number three, abandoning self-care and mislabeling uh, 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 self-love. So we want to deal with healthy self-love and healthy self-care. Um, number four. All right. We even begin with this one. What's number four? <laughs> number four is the topic of ghosting. Ghosting is the tendency to just not respond to someone and not give them the time of day to reply to a message or phone call or whatever and disappear. Hence the term ghost. Now, level with me, ladies here. Are you talking ghosting, ghosting guys, or do you ghost each other as girls as well? I think we can definitely ghost friends. I don't think that I've ghosted any friends per se, but it is easy to neglect if there's a person for example that keeps asking you to hang out and you don't really want to hang out with them or be their friend it's more important that you respond in some way than to just never respond at all because that's going to leave some serious negative psychological implications for that person and so 
yeah, to answer your question though, ghosting doesn't have to just be in the form of dating. In friendships, ghosting happens a lot. Molly actually has. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, are you a ghoster? <laughs> no, 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 she's not a ghoster. I feel like you had an, an experience with someone ghosting. Yes, I have lots of experiences with the ghosting romantically, friendship-wise, work-wise even. And it just is so, it's, this, I could talk for years about this, so please stop me if I go too much. <laughs> it's okay, let it out, Molly. <laughs> but it is, it's, to me, it's so disrespectful, and I feel like it stems a lot from this online and tech-based world that we live in because we're not humanizing people because we're not seeing them face to face a lot. So in my past dating life, I was basically only dating online. So when you're on that online platform, there's no human aspect because everybody's on your phone as this little bubble and you can create these real connections, but then people ghost. And I think it a lot of the time stems from not thinking of that other person as a real life person or a real life human. Same with friendships. You know, if you haven't seen someone in a while, like, oh, like I'll just, you know, not respond to them or whatever, because you're not in person with them. Same with when you're applying to jobs online, like you put the application in, oh, it's just another application. We don't have to get back to them. They're not qualified. They'll understand. When on the other end, the applicant is sitting there like, the am I going to get that job? Am I going to get that job? And it's so interesting to me that 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 this whole idea has blossomed into this pattern that not only female but all, a lot of millennial people think is okay and it's not because we're not respecting the people we're communicating with even with the employees like this thing often when we talk about ghosting we talk about it in a context of friendship most of relationships whereby uh, you can see somebody's on social media. You sent them a message on Instagram and they just posted something a couple of seconds ago, maybe Facebook, wherever platform you're using, and they didn't respond it. And they went back on social media and posted something and they still didn't respond. And we tend to think of it in that context. And you're mentioning, Molly, that workplaces too, professional places are now actually ghosting. You put in that application and you're trying to get that job and they know that you want that job and they just won't respond. And when they respond, thank you for applying. We'll keep your resume on file for six months. I mean, I've been waiting for two months and you're going to keep my resume for <laughs> six months. What was I supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. so, so ghosting is real and it affects people psychologically and it affects friendships too. I think it's interesting thinking about the workplace example. In all situations, it does stem from a certain ex to a certain extent from a sense of disrespect. But I think it also stems from a fear of rejecting someone, the fear of hurting someone. So I know for me, I try not to ghost, but there have been times in the past where perhaps I would meet a man on the subway and he'd text me and I wouldn't respond to him or something like that. And so it's, and it's because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And so in this case with the job applicants, it's like they either just don't have time. So they're not making it a priority or they say they take the time to write this really nice email saying, we'll keep your resume on file for six months because they don't want to hurt your feelings by telling you no. And what we really need to remember is that it's actually an act of compassion. And again, sometimes the loving act takes more work than the not loving act, but it's more respectful and more an act of love to tell the person the truth. Say, we're not hiring you. That way they can move on. Or I'm not interested in dating you. That is very hard to say, especially for people pleasers, especially for people who want to be kind to other people. I don't like hurting people's feelings. I don't want to say that. But the times that I've gone out of my way to say, hey, you're a really cool person. I'm not in a place to date you right now or whatever the reason may be. I always get a response saying, thank you. I appreciate you saying so. Or if the job applicant <laughs> say, you can't get the job. It's like, thank you for telling me. Now I can go apply to and other jobs. move on. Yeah, I I'm not going to be hanging there waiting. Exactly. So that's what I think people really need to remember. And I'm speaking to myself here too, is <laughs> it's not hurting someone's feelings. It might hurt. It might sting for a moment, but then they can move on. If you don't rip off the band-aid, then it's like leaving an open wound that is just going to be painful for a long time. The words fear 
rejection kept popping up as you were speaking. And I'm observing that more often the reason why people ghost is they don't want to hurt or it's a fear of rejection. And I'm just thinking of your subway example. I don't know if it happened or not, but um, the guy came through and like, yo, girl, can I get your phone number? And you gave him the phone number. You were like, you know what? I don't want to diss this guy right now. You know what? Let me just give him my phone number. Mm-hmm. When he does text me, I'm just going to ignore him. I'm not interested in him. He'll get it sooner or later. But the reality is you didn't want to hurt him. And that act of compassion turned out to be ghosting and it kept him in limbo. Maybe poor guy hasn't gotten a phone number in three years. Trisha, you gave him a number and you never responded. (laughs) Okay, so compassion, fear, rejection. Molly, is it easier for you to give a guy your phone number and not respond or to tell them, you know what, I'm not interested, I'll pass? I mean, I think it's obviously more easy to do it over the phone, Um, like if you don't respond or if you respond later saying, hey, I'm not interested. So I would encourage people at least to start with that Um, because that in-person interaction is hard, but you have to do it somehow because otherwise the people who you are not responding to are going to create so many stories in their head And that's what makes it so hard is when I would get ghosted, I would create millions of stories in my head. I'm not worth, is it me? I'm not lovable. Yeah. Color, like anything. So is, would you say that um, sometimes when uh, people um, um, don't communicate right away, what they feel, I'm talking from a female millennial perspective, is that the fear of being feminine? In in the sense that, hey, you know what? I am a female. I I I my feminine side can be tender. My feminine side can be chill. I don't feel like being assertive right now and tapping into my masculine side. So so that I don't have to deal with being feminine. I'll just give you my number and just text you and not text you. Is that that actually makes a lot of sense. It could for sure be that energy of, oh, I because traditionally the woman is being pursued and so you're just supposed to go along with it like oh this man wants to date me therefore <laughs> him. and so you don't want to to reject him but one thing just want to bring it back circle back to what molly was saying and the question you asked her about is it harder in person versus on the phone one of the very dangerous byproducts of this technological age is our inability to communicate face to face and so Yes, to answer your question, absolutely. That's why I gave him my number on the subway because it's a lot easier to say, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely interested. Here's my number. And that way I don't hurt his feelings than it is for me to not respond to a text or to even type over a message and say, hey, I'm not interested. That's easier than doing it in person, which is something we all need to check ourselves with and say, if there's something that I physically feel like I cannot do in person, but I can do it over text or over email, practice doing it in person because there was a time when people didn't have that option where you had to there was a time in history where a woman would be approached and she had to say no i'm not interested to his face he could handle it it's fine it's gonna be okay (laughs) (laughs) eventually people will figure it out they'll handle it They, they they need to know and understand that hey she is not interested so one of the last ones we wanted to talk about was comparing on social media. My this goodness. One of the hot topics <laughs> for me, I'm working on a lot, obviously, but this is one of the biggest things I'm working on as a millennial, as a user of social media. It is so easy to consume all of the information and pictures and stories on social media and just compare yourself. And it's so detrimental to all the things we've been talking about today. Like, what is our worth? Why aren't we as good as that girl or that guy? And I think, especially as a female millennial, it's it's important to think and talk about this because there are so many standards and social constructs that we need to fit into. And social media, a lot of the time, puts that out there. And because we're consuming it for, what, like four or five hours a day sometimes people are? that becomes part of our thought process and a lot of the time lowers our own personal self-worth. 
Yeah. So I think it's important just as a takeaway to remember that what you're seeing on social media may or may not be an accurate depiction of the person's life. Mm. And everyone is on their own timeline. So just because someone else is doing something at this point, doesn't mean you need to be doing this at that point. You have no idea what led them to be there and you have no idea what they're feeling. You don't really know the emotions behind that photo and comparing yourself is really such an exercise in futility. You can use comparison as a metric to, to observe your, I don't, we can use it as a metric for a variety of things, but if it's a personal thing and you're like comparing your body or comparing your stage of life or comparing your family or what you're doing in your downtime, it's like you can use that as inspiration, but the when it gets to the point of you're down on yourself because you don't feel, because you feel like you're less than, that's when it can be very toxic. That's true because social media is only a snapshot of uh, something in 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 the in a long time period, and who knows how many pictures that person took off a selfie in order just to choose that one. I, I see taking pictures of food. I haven't gotten into that yet. Maybe I'll get into it. taking pictures of food or selfies. <laughs> change angle and change angle. I mean, I'll confess I did some of that sometimes when I'm trying to look for a shot just for my for the stuff that I put out on social media, but. The reality is, it's just a snapshot of life. And that's not the reality of what's happening in somebody's life. And sometimes behind that snapshot is somebody who's depressed. And when you're watching that, you're thinking, man, I graduated with that girl in grade 12. Oh, I graduated with that girl in university. She's married now. She's got kids. Oh, look, they bought a house. She's driving a new car. I'm driving a beat up car. Just the other day, it broke down on the highway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so all these things that happen, they can affect us. Thank you so much, Molly and Trisha, for joining and coming through to Relationship Factor. It was a blast connecting with you. But I know you guys are doing some stuff out there. Where can we find more information about you? If our listeners want to get connect with you and find more information about you, where can we find you? Yes. Well, as we mentioned, we do host a podcast called The Lost Art of Communication, please check out our episode with Kingsley. We interviewed him recently and that was very fun. A lot of golden nuggets that didn't come up on today's episode. So definitely check out that episode first. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Lost Start of Communication. Feel free to email us at lostartofcommunication at gmail.com if you do have any communication questions, thoughts, or concerns. Thank you so much, Molly and Trisha, for coming through the Relationship Factor. As always, all the information is going to be on the show notes. Um, If you need more resources on how to build healthy relationships and how to grow and just to show up in healthy ways as a millennial, moving from a problem to solution, from functional to exceptional relationship, go check out relationshipfactor.org. And while you're at it and you're listening to this podcast, If you enjoyed it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. Hey, it's a wrap. Relationship Factor. Thank you, Molly and Fisher. Thank you.